Hey, No Wrong Answers listeners, just a quick note before we get to this latest episode. It's summer, hopefully you've noticed, and like past summers, we've given our teachers and ourselves a bit of a break. This episode you're listening to now is, in fact, our final episode of Season 3, and we have to say it's been a great year. Last month, we actually hit a big milestone, 10,000 downloads. That had been our goal ever since we started, and we want to thank you for coming back week after week to hear our teachers talk about their work and share share ideas with each other and you about their joys and challenges in the classroom. That's been our mission from the beginning more than two years ago. So there won't be regular new episodes in our feed for the time being as we take a summer break, but keep checking back here for updates on when new content will come. And again, thank you so much for listening. Rodney Robinson says his students deserve a second chance. Earlier this year, Robinson was named the 2019 National Teacher of the Year by the Council of Chief State School Officers. Robinson doesn't have a typical teaching assignment. The 19-year classroom veteran teaches history at Virgie Benford Education Center, which is part of Richmond, Virginia Public Schools, but is inside the Richmond Juvenile Detention Center. His students are teenagers in custody awaiting sentencing, some for low-level offenses, others facing more serious allegations like homicide in some cases. Yet Robinson insists his students are just kids who have made mistakes and deserve another shot at life. How he aims to give them that shot and what he does to motivate them to try and take it is the focus of my conversation with him. I happen to speak to Rodney Robinson on a summer afternoon just hours after his school and students held an end-of-year celebration. Well, Rodney, I understand... uh, your school earlier today on the day that we're taping this interview had an end-of-year celebration. Is that true? Uh, yes, they had an end-of-year celebration. We all just got together and just <laughs> celebrated the year and talked about what we're trying to do next year, um, how they can help me further the message of our kids throughout the year, and how I would actually come back and still work with my students. Even though I'm on the road, they're still going to create opportunities for me to come in and speak to the students and talk to them about my travels and what I'm advocating for to help them. Right, because you are going to be on sabbatical this next year as the National Teacher of the Year. I wonder what your colleagues uh, told you. What do they want you to say? What is the message that they want you to get out about uh, your school and your students? Well, they just want me to spread the truth. You know, there are a lot of misconceptions about uh, juvenile detention and, and some of the things that are going on within juvenile detention and how we can just be a positive beacon. You know, we don't, uh, I think there's a negative concept or mindset when it, you talk about juvenile detention. And, and at all costs, it really is a negative situation. But at our school, we try to take the negative into a positive. I always tell my students sometimes a temporary setback is what you need to refocus on your life. And so they want me to just go and spread that message that we're trying to refocus and repurpose the lives of our kids. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about your job at Virgie Benford Education Center um, within the Richmond Public Schools. Just tell me what it's like. It's a very challenging job because a lot of our kids come in, and first of all, the setup is very challenging because we're a, a midterm facility, meaning the majority of our kids are there for undetermined amount of time. So we could have a student that's with us for two days, or we could have a student that's with us for two years. And so we have to be very flexible with adjusting our lessons 
and developing plans to, so that all our students can succeed. Um, one of the bigger challenges is that student comes in, there's, there's three rules, there's three things. First is safety. We're going to make sure the kids in a um, situation or in a pod where they feel safe. And then second is legal. They're going to make sure that they're in a situation that does not infringe upon their rights. For example, they can't be in the same unit as a co-defender. And so then there's education third, which is kind of hard to put that in, paint paint a picture of how that looks. You may have a sixth grader in the same class as a 12th grader. Or you might have a student who's intellectually delayed in the same class as a student who's taking AP classes. And so you have to be very flexible with how you teach, you plan your lessons, and at any point those students could be moved without your opinion or your say-so on the matter. So you really have to be flexible and adjustable at all times to make sure that the student is getting what they need. And how do you, how do you build relationships in a situation like that when you, you don't know from day to day who's going to be in your class at times? Or you, if you're working with a student, you, you may suspect that they, they may not be there the next day? Well, the good news is because I've been teaching in Richmond City for well, almost 20, starting 20 years now, but I've also ingrained in the Richmond community. And so, therefore, I know who their teachers were in their comprehensive school. I know the directors of the local YMCA, the local coaches. And so because I'm so ingrained into the community, I can find a connection with the student, whether I know your former coach or I might have taught your brother at, at um, on my former school, Armstrong. And so it's always because I'm deeply ingrained into the community, I can always find a connection with those students. And then the students that are from outside of the community I let they sit with my currency speak for my speak for me, and so they always they <laughs> they always say Big Rob is cool or Big Rob no got your back, and so building those relationships with them is sort of like a transitive property because I have relationships with so many people I can find a common relationship or a common point to create a new relationship with all my students. When a, a new student comes in. Um you say you try to make connections with them. Like, tell me how, how a conversation would go. Like, what would you say to, to that student? Well, when the student first comes in, I just talk to them about school. I always say, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you had a positive experience with school? And the vast, vast majority of my students, the answer is no. And so I say, hey, look, this is a positive environment. You get to be a class leader. Your talents will shine in this class because it's a small environment. And so I'm going to build them up to participate. And then we focus on the other elements that usually, you know, they struggle with outside. Do you feel safe? Do you have a square, three square meals a day? And so we get them into that comfort zone to where they're comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. Because jail is an uncomfortable situation. However, if you're in a survival mode when you're not in jail, you can find some comfort in the stability of the jail system. And so I tell them, let's focus on the positive aspects, and then we're going to move on from that. And once it, because honestly, it takes a few days for them to get the trauma of being in jail. Yeah. And once they get adjusted, it's like, okay, let's move on to what's better for you. And I'm here to help you no matter what you want to do. Uh, well, as you said, you, your students are facing charges. They are there because they have uh, court dates or they have sentencing. They are uh, literally being yeah. processed uh, through the correction system as yeah. you are trying to teach yeah. them. Um, 
Uh, yet at the same time, um, in giving you the National Teacher of the Year Award, the Council for Chief State Schools officers uh, commended you for pushing your students, in the words of the commendation, I'll quote here, um, your students to become civically-minded social advocates who use their skills and voices to affect physical and policy changes at their school and in their community. So I wonder, what does that look like? Well, it all, it all, it's all about empowering students and letting them know that you have voice. And the number one thing you can do is just to listen. Listen to them. Listen to their concerns. And then when Washington understand their concerns, it's their energy and their goals on how do you change things. Is that change internally where you have to change something about yourself? Or is that something within the system that you don't see fair and that you want to change? And so we just try to empower them, whether it's literacy, through social, through social, of course, I'm a history teacher, so I'm always going to empower them through social activism and through the history and learning their rights. And so I just teach them how to positively advocate for themselves. Um, one thing that I did last year, um, last summer, was I took a course, not a course, in a seminar at the Yale Teachers Institute taught by James Foreman, who recently won the Pulitzer, well, not recently, but last year, won the Pulitzer for locking up our own. And this was a seminar called Race, Class, and Punishment. And what I did was I created a 10,000-word curriculum unit on the Virginia juvenile justice system and the history of prisons in the United States. And so the whole purpose was to teach the student, my students about the system and have them understand the system so that they can make better informed decisions about themselves and their future yeah, explain. and learn how to advocate for themselves. Yeah, I was going to ask about that curriculum because I know... That was a big part of, of what you did this past year. Um, yeah. What what did that result in? What were the what did the the, the students learn? That, or did you you see them learn certain things that really um, were memorable or, or turned light bulbs on for them and you? Well, the key thing I want them to learn is how the system works. Learn about parole, probation, you know, offenses, and how the whole system works so that they can make better decisions. A lot of times my students, the vast majority of my students are poor. So they're relying on public defenders to get them or guide them through the system. My whole purpose is to give them as much information about the system so that they can make better decisions. They can advocate for themselves, understand how a plea bargain works and how, how that affects you in the long, how those decisions you make now affect you in the long term. To give you an example, I had a student um, he was offered a plea bargain, six months of juvenile jail or 10 years probation. And he and I just had a long talk about the pros and cons of those two offers and so that he could make the best decision of whether he should take the six months of jail or the 10 years of probation. And so that really, you know, helped him understand the system. Now, to me, he made the wrong choice because he chose the 10 years probation, but the fact that he was he was informed to make a decision on his own is you, what I strive for. Yeah. Why do you think he made the wrong decision with the the ten years probation? <laughs> Honestly, because he violated already. He's yeah. pretty much back in jail and having to serve ten years. Um, well, that's sad. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, yeah. It, you it's know, sad, you... but at the same time, he he knew that going into the situation. Yeah. And that makes me feel better because even though you didn't right, make the right decision, you made an informed decision. 
and that's a lot, and that's what the purpose of that unit was. I mean, it, it strikes me that that particular situation, I mean, is almost an epitome of, of your job in that um, you really have to find the victories where they lay, and, and even that situation doesn't necessarily superficially sound like a victory, but um, you really have to scrape for every single thing with these students. Yes, it really is. And like I said, I really wish he had chosen the other option, but he made a sound argument to me of why this option was the best option for him at that time. And that's all I wanted. Yeah. Uh, I've seen you use the term culturally relevant um, in other interviews yeah. since you've been named the, the National Teacher of the Year. And I mean, uh, talking to a student who is uh, currently facing sentencing about whether he should um, uh, pick probation or or jail time um, in real time and getting him to decide which is better, uh, the pros and cons, of, that strikes me as like culturally relevant to the max and beyond a step that a lot of teachers ha- have to deal with. But um, why do you prioritize being culturally relevant for your students? So what, is, what does that term mean to you? Being culturally relevant means taking my students and their interests and their lives and applying all subject matters to those, them and their situation. That's what being culturally relevant is. Taking the knowledge that my students have and blending that with the knowledge that I want to teach them. And that creates higher engagement in class and it shows them an appreciation for their culture. Even though you're trying to change their mindset or change their culture, you're not completely dismissive of their culture because this is where they were born. This is where they were raised. And so you want to respect that. Because if you don't respect them, that culture, it's almost as if you're disrespecting them as a human being, and which puts up walls that prevent any sort of progress. And that term cultural, cultural relevancy is, is a buzz term often in education today. Um, I wonder what you think your experience um, can lend to other teachers who maybe um, know or intellectually understand that they have to be culturally relevant, but still struggle to figure out how to do that effectively in practice. But ultimately, culturally relevant teaching to me comes back to one thing, and that's relationships. Getting to know your students, know what they value, know what they appreciate, and just start teaching from that point of view. So if you're teaching them, um, think for example, if you're teaching them about, I'll give you a primary example. (laughs) Uh, My students, unfortunately, a lot of them are in the streets, and the majority of them are there for gun crimes. So their knowledge of guns, is actually kind of scary, but phenomenal. And so I use that to get into weaponology and to wars and to understand how strategy is determined by weapons because I'm a history teacher. And then we use that as a starting point with every um, war and every lesson. And then we just gravitate toward the areas where I want them to go. And that's respecting them and their knowledge and using it to further my knowledge and further their, what's the word I'm looking for, to get them engaged, is I think is a better way to say that, right. to add them actively taking ownership of their education. Are they ever surprised when you want to talk to them about guns? <laughs> uh, yes. But then again, they always know that it's going to end up back into something educational. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? So they're always wary. Exactly. They know <laughs> Yeah, and so, but it's a it's a good starting point. It's a it's a jumping off point, you know, and that they understand it and they can tell me things, and I can learn things from them that I don't know, and then I can say, well, this gun made a difference in World War Two, and and so we get into the history of that, 
you know, that to me is culturally relevant because that's the culture I'm dealing with. Hmm. Uh, you, know? you, men- you mentioned right off the top uh, just the deep, deep ties that you have to the Richmond community that helps you uh, build re- relationships with a lot of these students who come in and, and, and out in a very transient way. Um, yeah. I also just wonder how important is it that you are a black man teaching in this setting? Oh, that, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's my platform. I always say students need teachers who look like them, who appreciate them, who value their cultures, but more importantly, can model what they can be in life. And so, and that's the greatest thing about um, me being chosen teacher the, as teacher of the year because I tell my students my story. They know where I come from. They know where I, that I come from similar um, situations, not too this, not too different from their situation. And to see me get elevated to the highest point in the profession is really a, an inspirational story for them. They they're really excited that I can make it to this point. But more importantly, I'm telling them, hey, look where I came from. Look what I look where I am. Look where you are. You can be here. You can be anywhere you want to be. And so I'm always stressing that, especially with uh, my young black males, my young Hispanic males, because they're constantly under attack by the media as far as stereotypes and images. And so I try to flood them with positive images and of who they can be and what they can be. For example, whenever I'm on a plane, if I see an African American or Hispanic pilot. I'm going to take a picture with that pilot and show them. If I'm, when I was at CBS, I went into a room and they had several African-American producers. I took pictures with them to let them know you could be producers. It's just trying to counteract that negative narrative of who they are and telling them what they can be. Uh, and that's why I'm happy for that. Uh, yeah, you mentioned CBS. You were on the, the Today Show soon after the announcement was made uh, back in April yeah. or May. Um, also, a video of that uh, uh, during that announcement showed your classroom, your school. I mean, it's all decked out in all kinds of posters, motivational sayings, yeah. college banners. I mean, this is, uh, again, kind of uh, repeating that theme of showing them what's possible. Yes. Yes, that's definitely, that was my point. Because when I first got there, it just looked like a jail, an institution. You know, I'm from education background. I'm saying everything should look educational, every school, every classroom. And so I just changed the entire feel of the building. So when you're walking through, your mind can wonder. You can be inspired. I often tell you they can lock up your body, but they can never lock up your mind. And so as you walk through that building, I want you to be constantly thinking about where you can be, who you can be, where you can go. One of, one of my walls is just a bunch of just beautiful places around Earth, around the, around the world that, hey, maybe you can visit this place one day. And so I constantly want them thinking of the possibilities for when they get out of detention. Uh, You alluded to it. You you taught in Richmond Public Schools before moving to your current assignment. What made you want to teach at the Virgie Benford Education Center inside the the juvenile detention center? Well, I worked at, um, um, well, I've been, of course, I've been in Richmond Public Schools for 15 years, and I've always worked at high-need schools. And I worked at Armstrong High School for 12 years, which um, is just one of those schools in one of those neighborhoods that's been economically and racially segregated for pretty much 100-plus years. And so you had a lot of high-need students there. And honestly, after 12 years of that, I was beginning to burn out. And so I didn't want to become jaded toward the profession. So I just wanted to do something on a smaller scale but still work with this sort of population. And just so happened that year, um, the, that's 2015, that's when the report came out about 
the school to prison pipeline, the first eye-opening report was data, and it said that Virginia was the number one state in the nation in referring school referring students to the juvenile justice center. And so it just like perfect timing is like I can still I can move to another school, but I also get to understand the school to prison pipeline. Because I've always felt this is my personal belief beforehand that it was a poverty to prison pipeline and that we criminalized being poor in America. And so I just wanted to go to the juvenile detention center to see how does education play into this whole prison pipeline. But my biggest wake-up moment was my first day at the detention center, I had three students who had just failed my class at my comprehensive hospital. Mm -hmm. And so once I got to know them, I realized these were three intelligent young men. How did they fail my class? And so that's when I started to understand, hey, they were truant. Then they were suspended for being truant. And they were getting, got behind on the work and they never could get caught up. And then by them being suspended, they were in the streets doing things that they shouldn't have been doing. And that's how they ended up in detention. And so to me, it was like, right in my face, this is the school to prison pipeline. The policies we had in the school put those students in a bad situation, and they ended up in prison. And so that was just a really wake-up call to me and really said, hey, let's start examining some of these policies in schools, such as exclusionary discipline and the use of um, school resource officers to handle discipline and how that's pretty much furthering the school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, Back in April, you met with President Trump in the Oval Office of the White House. Um, For what it's worth, he did not present you with the award personally, bucking a tradition of presidents personally handing off the National Teacher of the Year Award that dates back to 1952. You got it from Education what? Secretary Betsy DeVos. Uh, be that as it may, um, you did end up saying uh, after meeting with President Trump that it had been a very productive day for you and your students, and I wondered what you mean by that. Well, the day was overall productive because I met with DeVos and some of the Department of Education you know, um, administrators, and I've gotten invites back to meet with them on some of their panels on the school-to-prison pipeline. I'm going to meet with them on their panel for diversifying teacher workforce. And so it was very productive from that, from that point of view was by going in and being diplomatic, I got into rooms that I would not have gotten into had I not been diplomatic. And so it was just a very productive and plus it was just a pleasant experience. I'll be honest. Going into the White House and to the Oval Office, regardless of who the president is, it's just a, a humbling moment to walk into that office. And President Trump was actually very entertaining that day and very complimentary of teachers. And it was just an overall pleasant experience. Did you tell your students about the experience and in, in, in the conversation you had with the president? Yes, and I told them that it worked because I now will go back to Washington, D.C., and I'll get to talk about what they need in juvenile detention and how they can try to extend second excuse me, second chance Pell Grant so that some of them who graduated could start some college courses. And it was just a beneficial trip for them and for myself. And they were very receptive of that, you know, regardless of how they feel about the president. The fact that he and I, or his administration and I, are going to sit down and try to make decisions which are best for them really was a positive moment for them, and they were really excited. Uh, well, let's talk about, um, just wrapping up here, let's talk about 
uh, your next year as National Teacher of the Year. It's an elevated platform for you. Um, you know, last year we talked to the 2018 National Teacher of the Year, Mandy Manning. Um, she was very focused on the plight and challenges of migrant and first-generation immigrant students. Uh, she even organized what she called a teach-in in El Paso a few months ago, partly in protest over the detention of migrant children. But uh, what are your policy priorities over the next year? What do you want to focus on? My priority, I have two main priorities. The first, of course, is economic equity, making sure all students have the resources that they need to be successful. Some, the way we fund schools in our, in our country leads to gross inequities across the, you know, across the United States. And so my whole point is to let's examine some of these inequities and see how we can get every student the proper resources they need to have a quality education. And then the second platform is cultural equity, and that's making sure students have teachers who look like them, who appreciate their culture, and inspire them to be whatever they want to be, and just getting a little more diversity into the teaching profession. As you know, 50% of our students are non-white, but 80% of our teachers are white. And so we're going to try to get that number, you know, those two numbers a little more in balance, because... With cultural inequities comes misinterpretations, and quite honestly, I've seen it end up in the juvenile detention center. And so I want to make sure all students have teachers that appreciate their culture and value them and inspire them to be whatever they want to be. And so what is what are your first stops? What, what most urgently are you going to be working on, or where are you going to be going uh, first as you embark on this, this one-year journey <laughs> or adventure? I think it just lines up in the stars that you know, my two first two events fit perfectly with my platform. My first event is Educators Rising, which is, of course, te- talking to students who want to be teachers and just recruiting those students who I feel will make a big difference in the classroom, recruiting students who look like, the, <laughs> who want to be teachers, but also look like the students they're going to teach. And so that's a big, big event as far as promoting cultural inequity, cultural equity and getting teachers that look like my students. Then the second major event is going to be the NEA Delegate Conference. And so we're going to go there and we're going to talk about these inequities and how as a country we can work together to make sure all the students have the economic resources to to receive a quality education. So I'm really excited about those two events and they just happen to be my two kickoff events. Well, Rodney Robinson, the... 2019 National Teacher of the Year teaches history at Virgie Benford Education Center in Richmond Public Schools. Uh, Ronnie Robinson, Big Rob, as your students call you. Uh, good luck on this next year. Thank you for talking to No Wrong Answers. No problem. It's my pleasure.